Welcome to The Bittersweet Life. In our candid backstage conversation with renowned travel writer and novelist, Paul Theroux. I'm Katie Sewell. Paul and I sat down together at Town Hall Seattle, a performance venue known for bringing great scholars and writers to the stage. You can hear that conversation and so many other great talks by subscribing to Town Hall's podcasts. Four different threads are available based on your interests. Arts and culture, science, civics, and a show called In the Moment, featuring more backstage conversations like the one you're about to hear. The Bittersweet Life exists because of our listeners, people who subscribe to the show and tell a friend about it. If you love the show, shout it everywhere. And there's people like Jessica, who recently jumped on Patreon to support us at the $20 a month level. Support also comes from Italy Beyond the Obvious, a supporter at the $50 level. Are you traveling to Italy? Get help at italybeyondtheobvious.com. You can help this show survive. You can help this show thrive. And you have the power to make us feel valued. You can make the hard work and endless passion and labor that makes this show possible feel like it's worthwhile. Pay for it. Patreon.com slash The Bittersweet Life Podcast. And now to Backstage Town Hall and travel writing tips from the great Paul Theroux. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I am joined by Paul Theroux. He's the author of many highly acclaimed books. His novels include The Low River and The Mosquito Coast. And he is very highly regarded because of his travel books, which include Ghost Train to the Eastern Star and Dark Star Safari. His latest book is On the Plain of Snakes, A Mexican Journey. Thanks for being here. Katie, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining me on the stage last night, too. We did a live event together. Oh, that was fun. It was. It was really fun. And it's fun to just sit here with just you and me. So I kind of wanted to focus more today. Yesterday, we talked a lot about Mexico and the Mexico border. And I definitely encourage people to listen to that. But I do want to talk a little bit more about your process and what you're like as a traveler today. Mm-hmm. In the book, you say that writing takes practice and travel takes practice. So can you describe or do you remember what kind of a traveler you were when you began 50 years ago? Yes, I think first, my life, my imaginative life started in a library. So I come from Medford, Massachusetts, and we didn't have a lot of books in my house. We had access to the library. The Medford Public Library was in a beautiful house. It was called the Magoon Mansion. The Magoon Mansion was in the middle of Medford. So they had comfortable chairs and I'd sit there. And the books that I read mostly were travel books. There were books about Richard Halliburton, The Royal Road to Romance was one of his, and Seven League Boots. He may not mean much to you, but in the 19, I guess, 40s and 50s, he was one of the most famous adventurers. He, for example, swam the length of the Panama Canal. Mm. Uh, He went to the Taj Mahal. He climbed mountains. And he wrote books about it. So he wrote about three or four highly acclaimed books. I got them in the library. I read them. He died trying to cross the Pacific in a Chinese junk. One of the things that emerged about Richard Halliburton later was he was gay. 
and he was kind of trying to prove himself. And I don't know whether there's a biography of him. I don't think there's a biography. But he was an interesting guy, and that was an inspiration. So life begins with books mm -hmm. for me. Couldn't afford books. I didn't buy a book till I was about 18, 19 years old, and it was probably Jack Kerouac. I remember the books I read. Um, most of them were travel books, or there were books about camping, there were books about the Arctic, about trapping wild animals, there were about Africa. A lot to do with animals, capturing animals, shooting animals. My life began there. I come from a very large family, so I had a very, very strong ambition to leave, to get out of the family, to, to have more space. So I went to college, and then after that joined the Peace Corps. So I suppose you could say my first extensive travel was with the Peace Corps. You began by saying, I said it takes practice. I think practice, experience, experience with books. And books made me a writer. They also made me a traveler. Mm. And so it's hard to be a reader, a dedicated reader, and not think of being a writer. It's hard to read travel books and not think about being a traveler. And so being a traveler, being a writer, they were kind of related. Would you say that you're a more confident traveler now? After 50 years of constantly taking to the road, do you remember what it was like the first time you set out? Or did the books themselves already give you confidence before you even left? That's a good question. I think I'm a more patient traveler. I don't know about the confidence. Confidence is really related to the, to the place. You could feel, say I went to Mexico, I felt fairly confident going there. But I, had, I got so many warnings about the cartels, about murder, about mayhem, about I was driving, my car being hijacked, all that kind of thing. People can worry you about it. I'm trying to think when I felt unconfident. I've, I've always felt I could pretty much make my way. Being from a big family, as I just mentioned, helps because when you come from a big family, as opposed to just being an only child or two people, seven kids and nine people around the table, you learn to negotiate. You learn to negotiate at the dinner table, in the house, in the yard, and you become very good at reading what people want, avoiding conflict. You can see when someone's trying to create conflict. Although I have mixed feelings about big families. I mean, I think big families are like, in many respects, like a savage tribe, <laughs> but certainly like a, a tribe that are savage. But because I wrote a book called Motherland about my upbringing, about my family. It was very helpful in travel to have the experience of a big family and to know how to negotiate. You read little signals that people send out, mm -hmm. anxiety symbol, body language, expressions. So joining the Peace Corps liberated me from my family and also introduced me to a place that was utterly alien, the middle of Africa. Yeah. It's interesting because in your book about Mexico, you learn to speak Spanish pretty proficiently, but you've been to so many places. What's the difference for you in being in a place where you can actually communicate versus being in a place where language is something that sort of needs to fall away? You're at a great disadvantage if you don't speak the language. A place where English is helpful that's also an exotic place is India. It's pretty rare to be in an Indian town and not find someone who speaks mm -hmm. English. English is the second language because so many languages are spoken in India, and that's helpful. But to be in a place where you don't speak the language, you're lost, you're lost. And you might as well go home because 
you're just at the mercy of anything people say. I mean, you know, you just find yourself. Yeah, I've been in this position. I mean, in Turkmenistan, for example. Well, I, I can't speak the Turkmen language. Uh, Uzbekistan, same thing. But I, I made a point in places of trying to learn the language. The first language I learned was Italian. So I can speak Italian pretty well. And I had a job in Italy before I joined the Peace Corps. I worked in a town called Urbino. I can get along in Italian pretty well. In Africa, I spoke Swahili, but I learned the local language of this country that I was in is called Chichewa. And I learned to speak that well enough to be able to converse with people. Hmm. But it, 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 language is always a problem. Yes, it's always a problem for me, too. I have trouble picking it up, as everyone who listens to this show knows. I, I do not have a gift for it. So far, anyway. Who knows? Maybe it'll come about. So how do you approach interviewing people on the road? Can you give a demonstration? Like, let's say you ran into me and you wanted to find out something about the town I'm in. What would you do to get me talking to you? I might ask you about the town, but if I met you in Mexico, I would be aware of the fact that I was talking to a woman, that you might have a husband, you might have a father who was overprotective. I would have to be very careful in the questions that I asked you, assuming you're a single woman. It's very easy to go wrong talking to a woman in India, in Africa, in Mexico, many places. I mean, some places it's no problem. In, in parts of Europe, it's not a serious problem. So the first thing that I would think of talking to you, I would need to gain your confidence. And I would probably start by saying, uh, are you a student? And that would be a way of saying, if you're a student, you're probably not married. So that's a kind of a safe question. Mm -hmm. So I would ask you a number of, uh, are you a student? You would say, no. No. Oh, you're not a student. Oh, that's, but what, did you study in this town? Yes. <laughs> no, and what, what was yeah, your subject? I see. I see. Creative nonfiction writing. Now, what a coincidence, because I'm a writer myself, and uh, I've published various things in this. <laughs> yeah. So so I could introduce myself as a writer since you, you studied. Right. What sort of things do you write? And I would ask you that. Mm -hmm. And I would ask you safe questions. I, would, I wouldn't ask personal questions until I gained your confidence enough so that I could risk that. Where do you live? Do you have family? What are your ambitions? And so mm -hmm. forth. Mm -hmm. It takes a while. I mean, there are some people who resist answering questions and I would say among them Americans mm -hmm. Americans are very averse to being asked personal questions they will tell you about gun owning about the government about the weather and they'll go on but as soon as you stray into some unsafe territory which would be either personal or it might be political actually who would you vote for or who do you like or They'll say, are you from the government? You know, why are you asking me these questions? So I wrote a book called Deep South, and I found that talking to people in the South could be a minefield. I'm obviously not a Southerner, and uh, I was seen very quickly as being a Yankee. And a lot of Southerners have this long historical memory of, uh, do you know what you did to us? A woman said to me in Mississippi, Vicksburg, Mississippi. What I personally did to well, I didn't do anything. But in, in 1862 or three, the uh, siege of Vicksburg involved the starvation of a lot of people from Vicksburg. I personally didn't do it, but the a Union Army did it. That's a problem. And then there's countries that say hello. Hello and how are you? That's helpful. 
And then there is there are countries where people don't say hello, or there are areas where people don't say hello. In New England, people don't say hello. If you walk down the street and you see someone and you say hello, they might say hello back, but chances are they'll look at you funny and they'll think, why are you saying hello to me? I did the exper this experiment at my local post office. I started to say hello to people in the post office. So I'd walk in the post office, there'd be people opening their mail, and I'd say, hello. And they would look at me. They wouldn't say hello back. They'd say, is he drunk? <laughs> is he crazy? Why is he saying hello? Because people habitually don't do it. Hmm. But I thought I soldiered on. I did it. And I realized it's fruitless to try to strike up casual conversation or even to say hello to people in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Other places, other people, people in India, for example, I found could be very conversational. In Africa, they will talk about where they live, how much money they make, how many children they have, do they want another wife, you know, whatever, where they'd like to go. Some people just unburden themselves. Yeah. So it's conversation is a cultural thing, but you need not only to develop an ability to talk to strangers, but you need to develop ability to remember what they say if you're a travel writer, because you don't want to be seen writing things down. Is there a hazard to being seen as a journalist versus uh, just a traveler? In other words, could you not get the stories that you could get if you appeared to be there specifically to be reporting on Africa, say? There is a hazard to being a journalist in many countries. I mean, Mexico is one. Uh, Africa, not so much. Here, in the, in, in the States, uh, saying you're a journalist can make people very angry. A lot of right-wing people hate journalists. They hate the press. They hate the media. They think news is fake. So if you say you're a journalist, it's like you're a you're an anarchist, you hate the government or something like that. Whereas all you're doing is trying to find the truth. But I think the mistake is in seeming to remember what people are saying, to write it down. If someone sees you writing things down, they get very concerned. Why are you writing that down? What are you doing with it? Mm -hmm. And I've met people in the Pacific. I was in the Isle of Vanuatu, and I remember a man saying to me, I asked him about a particular feature of his island it was a cult like a cargo cult i started to write it down make just to make a note i wasn't copying verbatim but he said what are you doing i said just trying to remember this and he said no i don't want you to take my stories they're my stories these are my stories i don't want to give you my story i found that in hawaii i found that people in hawaii have this conceit of owning a story and that you can't quote them all or, or write their story. They think, this is mine. <laughs> a man in Hawaii was, I was writing things down, and he said, you're going to have to pay me for this. I said, what? He said, I'm helping you. I'm, I'm, I'm writing. I, I need you to pay me for my story. And I said, well, you got the wrong man. I'm not going to pay you. I, I'll, I won't tell your story then, but I'm not going to buy your story. Yeah, yeah. So that is, it's very complicated, but I think the hard part of travel is, is to understand how small you are and that you need to be humble and you need to understand that other people are interesting, that you're not particularly interesting, and you're not there to take something away. You're, you need actually to realize that um, you're a guest and you have to be polite. It's like being in a big family. You need to go negotiate your way. Well, this is a question from Bruce, which you kind of touched on there, but he says, what tips do you have for normal travelers who want to travel close to the ground like you do? One way is... Uh, to take public transport. I mean, there's a whole class of travelers who simply swear by taking public transport. They take buses, 
trains, shared taxis, little you know minivans, tuk-tuks, you know little putt-putt bikes, and they swear off flying unless it's absolutely necessary. But they stick to ferries, buses, and so I would say traveling close to the ground is all to do with being independent and taking public transportation as much as possible, and to travel as slowly as possible. So mm. someone might say to you, you say, instead of flying to Portland, I'm going to take the bus from Seattle. Or you're in Mexico and you say, I'm going to the border from choose a place. It could be Oaxaca. Take a bus. There are other countries, India, for example, where let's say you're in Delhi and you want to go to the Himalayas, the low foothills of the Himalayas. You want to go to a town called Hadwa near Rishikesh. There's a train. You would take the train, then you'd take a bus and you'd get to Rishikesh, which is in the upper Ganges. And from there, you might take another train, you might take another bus, you might take a shared taxi, whatever. But that's the way to travel. To travel close to the ground means you're not spending much money, but you need extra time. So to travel slowly, to travel inexpensively, you need time and you need patience. But it's, it's possible. And to Bruce, I would say, just try it. Just Take public transportation. Stay on the ground. If someone says, oh, it's quicker to fly, you say just I want to travel my own way. And ideally traveling in daylight rather than taking a bus at 7 o'clock at night and arriving 7 in the morning, then you don't see anything. You're just mm-hmm. on a bus rattling around. So it's ideal to travel during the day. When people think of your books, they often remember a story or a person that you met or these touches of humanity that make a country more vivid if you've never been there before. But when I was reading your Mexico book, I was thinking all along the way too how beautiful some of your descriptions of the nature that you're seeing is. And it made me wonder how you think about the intersection of nature versus humanity when you're traveling. How do you see the connection between the two? Or take that question however you want, really. Uh, I quoted in the book uh, a line by Camus, which is a man cured of his anxiety by long contemplation of a landscape. And I think that contemplation of a landscape, being in the bosom of a big landscape, is really one of the most pleasant experiences you can have. And one of the most unsettling is to be in the heart of a city. I find cities hard to live in. I find them hard to write about. I don't find them enjoyable to sleep in. You know, I I never get a good night's sleep in a city. I always feel is um, though I'm in a little box, I can always feel a vibration. I feel there's light outside. You open, you look out the window in a city and it's always light. You know, it's, it's never dark and it's never mm-hmm. quiet. So landscape, to me, is a very important part of travel, looking at it. Not because you're, I'm, I'm describing the beauties of the landscape, but just for the calm that induces in you. Many of us travel just to relieve ourselves of anxiety and to be happy and to feel somewhat rejuvenated. And I think that's why people go to the beach. I think it's why people go to the mountains. It's why they go on hikes. Mm-hmm. You live in a city, What's you come to New York City, people end up in Central Park all the time, or they, they try to get out. I must say, I'm not a city slicker. I'm not a, an urban person at all. I've lived in cities. I lived in Singapore. I lived in London. I grew up just outside Boston, Massachusetts. So I know cities pretty well. I've very rarely written about cities. I, I, I lived in London. I wrote about London a little bit. 
I wrote a book called Hotel Honolulu. That's a book about a group of people in Honolulu and the activities of this particular hotel. I suppose you could call it an urban book. But in general, I've written about people in isolated circumstances in remote places, I suppose you could say. Mm -hmm. The city gives you no indication of a landscape. It doesn't even give you, in general, uh, an indication of up and down. Living in London, I used to ride my bike, and I realized that London is a river valley. People who go there don't realize it. You ride a bike, if you live there for a long time, you realize if you live south of the river, you go downhill to the river, go along the river, it's flat, and then you go up the river to Hyde Park or the West End, mm-hmm. and when you're going home, going down. So you, it's a valley, you know, <laughs> it's the Thames Valley. And then it rises, North London goes north up to Hampstead. So if you saw London with no houses, you'd be looking at a valley, a mm. green valley. The Romans probably saw it as a green valley. And it's not anymore. I find urban life nasty. I find it nasty in so many ways. But if I went on about it, you'd say, there's something wrong with me. But I do think that people who live in cities have shorter lives. I think their lungs are clogged with soot and car fumes. And I think that they don't know the peacefulness of people who live in a country area. They don't know that you can go to sleep in darkness and silence and wake up in sunlight. It's true. You've documented so many different places over 50 plus years of traveling. But some of those places, like the Amazon, for instance, is probably radically different now from what you documented when you were there. Do you think of your writing as a record of a particular time, or is this just a sadness of how we march forward? That's an excellent question, and it's absolutely to the mark. Now, I think whatever value my books have, people could say, I'm an irascible traveler. I've been called irascible, grumpy, bad jokes, whatever it is, (laughs) snap judgments. I could say that my books are a record of a a country or a place at a particular time. All of them are. All of them are. And I would say the China that I traveled in in 1986 and 87 no longer exists. The Africa that I knew in the 1960s, I lived in Africa from 1963 to 1968, doesn't exist. There's more people, there's more traffic, there's more illiteracy, there's more sickness, there's more poverty, there's worse government. All of that's new. I lived, I think, in Africa in a golden age of post-independence, post-colonial cities. So I do think that my books, whatever their faults, are records of a particular place at a particular time. And you were asking, have I noticed changes? Absolutely. I don't know of a single place that I've traveled that hasn't changed Everywhere I've been, name the book. I've written 11 travel books. 12, if you count a book I wrote with Steve McCurry about India. So a dozen books. I mean, name the place. The um, the Turkey that I was in, in in 1973. I was in Afghanistan in 1973. Afghanistan, I went through. I was on a bus. I was with people. I was smoking hashish. I was having a w- wonderful time. <laughs> eating the food, talking to people. That's gone. That's gone. Afghanistan yeah. is a war zone. I've traveled through the Soviet Union, as it was called, in 74. Doesn't exist. Soviet Union is gone, and the stands are all different. Albania, India, Pakistan, Vietnam. Imagine, look at Vietnam, how much that's changed. 
And I could say the United States. I grew up in the United States when it was a country of 150 million people. There are now 330 million people, more than twice the number of people and probably five times the number of cars. So that's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. And that creates a visual impression. Old fogies are always talking about the old days, but I do remember a time when I could drive into Boston, pull up by the side of the road, park my car, run into a building, come out, get the car and drive away. No one can do that now. You could do it in New York City, drive up Madison Avenue, Mm -hmm. park at a meter, buy something and drive off. No one does that now in New York. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it just doesn't happen. So there's a crush of people, of cars, of demands, of houses. The world has changed radically because of the number of people. So writing, sometimes I read a description. I was in a town called Kunming in 86, 1986 in Kunming, China. I went back there in 2007. It was unrecognizable, absolutely unrecognizable. So travel books do have that capacity to, uh, to show you the way things were. And when people write histories of the future, they often, when they write history, period, they depend on travel books and the accounts of travel, what travelers observe. Well, how does that make you feel, though, to have these places so different? Like when you go back and you see that... Kunming? Yeah, Kunming. You go back there and you find that it's completely gone from what you remember. How do you first, feel? The first thing, it's shocking. There's, there's culture shock in it. It's sort of depressing. It's very disorienting because then you have to find what we think. Well, well, I stayed in this hotel, but the hotel doesn't exist. Uh, you're, you're lost. You're lost. But I would say that then you need to... I mean, the traveler needs to describe it as it is. The whole point of travel is to see things as they are, to to describe a place as it is, not you as you wish it to be, and not to romanticize it. When people go to London, for example, a lot of people look for Dickens's London, they look for Henry James' London, they look for merry old England, and sometimes they find it in a little corner and they write about it. But that's not that's not England. Mm-hmm. England is a much much different place from the uh, the England that, that Dickens wrote about. It's more depressing, it's more interesting, it's more textured, it, it, and very, very, very different. It's not people having tea and going to Wimbledon. It's more likely a bunch of soccer hooligans running riot on a train, or people waiting in a waiting for a bus, you know, whatever it is. That's the way things are. I lived there, and when people came to England, when I lived there, I could see they wanted to have tea and, I don't know, and, <laughs> and see, they'd, they'd say to me, Paul, have you seen Phantom? Phantom of the Opera. I'd say, no, I haven't. What Phantom's on? They would they'd talk about plays and music and concerts and things. And I would say, I'm here, I'm working, I'm raising a family, paying my taxes, I'm, you know, up to my, up to my neck in either debt or responsibilities. And I take the kids to the local park or whatever it is, and the school, and I got to buy the school uniform. It wasn't going to the West End to a, a play. That's what tourists do. My England was different from their England. You mentioned in the book, I actually wrote the quote down. You write, it's pleasant in Mexico to sit by the beach, inert and sunlit, sipping a mojito. But who wants to hear about that? What you crave in a travel narrative is the unexpected, a taste of fear, the sudden emergence by the roadside wicked policeman threatening harm. 
And I think that's true in the writing, but it made me think also that so much of what's happening on social media and in travel blogging now is about people sipping the mojito. It is people taking pictures of their lunch, for instance. It is very much this picturesque, the sunset going down over the bay. What do you think about that? And we're going to leave this episode there on that cliffhanger. Lucky for you, if you have the time to keep listening, part two is ready and waiting for you right now. You'll find out the answer to that last question and what Paul Theroux makes of the expat lifestyle. It's probably not what you think. That's part two of Paul Theroux. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Thanks for all the ways you support us. Give us a good rating on iTunes, subscribe to the show, and pledge your support at patreon.com slash the bittersweet life podcast. And for goodness sake, interact with us on social media. Just search for the bittersweet life podcast on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or send us an email at bittersweetlife at mail.com. That's bittersweetlife at mail.com. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, send us a letter there too. Our logo is by Jody Rick at the Lost Laboratory, with help from our muse, Caravaggio. Talk to you next week. Bye.